Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing Black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Maya Gold Patterson. Maya is a designer and creative in Los Angeles, California, and previously held down product design and design leadership roles at Facebook, Twitter, and most recently, Riverside.fm. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Maurice. I am Maya Gold Patterson. I'm a designer and I recently quit my job <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a good note. I'm doing good. So it's good. But what I do traditionally is product design. And I've worked in big tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, and small tech companies, Riverside, a startup most recently, has filled up most of the time of my career. You know, you dropped this on me like the day before we were about to record. <laughs> and I mean, first of all, I'm always excited when someone decides to quit their job because I just feel like that's just <laughs> such a great opening up to new experiences and new opportunities and stuff like that. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about that. But I'm just curious, <laughs> like so far, like leading up to this, how has the year been going? The year has been rough. Oh, my gosh. It, well, it's been highs and lows. It's been yo-yos. So just to give a little bit of context, like starting out the year, I'm a new mom, maybe not as new as I was at the start of the year. So my, my son is 11 months old. But at the start of the year, I was on maternity leave, but supposed to come back. And I was supposed to come back to Twitter where Elon Musk had recently acquired the company and well, I was on maternity leave. So that was kind of terrible. I was dealing with like post weaning depression, which people don't talk about often. It has to do with like breastfeeding and all of that. And mm -hmm. then using all those emotions and trying to figure out what was next for me. I was like doing job hunting and soul searching. And so that was a rough like start to the year. But then I met these two incredible founders, the founders of Riverside. And we had some awesome like working sessions sort of informally that escalated into a full-time role as a VP of design in which we all knew it would be kind of an uphill battle. They were based like globally. So it was going to be a 10 time zone difference between me and them. Ooh. And yeah, so I was waking up at like 5 a.m. to get on calls between 6 to 11 a.m. essentially. And at first it was really working and I was really excited and eventually for a lot of reasons, it just, it wasn't right. And yeah. I'm like smiling while I'm saying this, not because of what has happened there, but because of the state that I'm in now. Like, I'm so excited for the next half of my year and mm -hmm. like the six months after that. But the first leading up to now, it has been rough. 
but also amazing and incredible and to watch like my son grow up and I just turned 30. Like there's a lot of newness and experience and learning that I'm taking in. And I feel like it all just sort of like came to a head in the last six months. Wow. Well, congratulations on your son. That's amazing. Thank you. I've done the 10 hour time zone thing too. The last company I worked at was uh, headquartered in San Francisco or co-headquartered in San Francisco and Paris. So mm-hmm. I would sometimes have to meet whatever was happening in the West Coast. But then we had people, I think, as far out as I want to say as far out as India, maybe maybe not that far. I know we had people in Africa. We had people throughout Europe, but it was roughly like a 10 time zone kind of gap. And that's it's rough. It's, it's rough. hard. I know remote work has made it so we can work from anywhere, but time zones are time zones and it's rough. Yeah, it is. It really is. And the most challenging thing, honestly, wasn't for me, like getting up early. Like I had already learned how to not sleep (laughs) so much (laughs) with the baby. So he trained me well for this, but it was the type of impact that I know I want to have on a company and on a product and for customers Mm -hmm. through my design work was just super challenging with that time zone gap and the nuance of what I was dealing with in comparison to what I had come from, like at Twitter, we were all remote. That was the nuance. Everyone was remote versus in this scenario at Riverside, I was the one that was remote and everyone was local Oh, and they were locally 10 time zones away. So, Oh, wow. Right. So there just would be a lot happening, a lot happening that I would never just like get to pick up on um, Mm -hmm. in terms of context and, decision making and it's a startup so it moves fast and so just there's only like that three hour overlap where I'm actually getting to meet with the team and different people at the company and so if a lot of that time is spent just catching up when is the time spent like to do the work and Mm -hmm. it was tough to find that rhythm honestly but everyone was really committed to it so I commend us for that (laughs) (laughs) you know when you were last on the show this was uh november 2016 i was we were talking about this a little bit before recording but you were a bonus episode because mm-hmm. we ended up doing this like right after i think it was the week trump was elected in november 2016 mm-hmm. and i went back and revisited that conversation and listened through it and you mentioned you know talking about when you're nervous about something or there's something that you want to do that you're not sure is the best thing you kind of have this like not in your chest of like nervousness. Did you have that feeling when you decided like, it's time for me to quit? Like it's time for me to to move on? Yeah, I did. But yes, for two reasons. One was because I genuinely really liked working with, with everyone I was working with at Riverside. So it was hard to come to the decision like I needed to walk away. So just deciding to walk away gave me the ick. <laughs> it was really mm-hmm. d- difficult. But also like, the other part of me quitting was me committing to not taking another full-time job and to not interview. And that's something I'm even just like exploring within myself, like what I really mean by that. But I, I really mean it. I'm committing myself right now to a year of not just jumping into another tech role. And that's a statement to make for myself. I'm always the one to go and figure out what the plan B is. So if I were going to quit and then, you know, go to the next thing, I wouldn't be that scared and that nervous, but I'm quitting and not immediately jumping back into big tech or any type of tech. I'm kind of exploring a bunch of different paths. Yeah. When you emailed me yesterday, you told me that you were, you were pulling the plug on big (laughs) tech and that is something that you wanted to do for a few years now. Like what does pulling the plug on big tech mean to you at this moment? I'm such a drama queen. 
like <laughs> it, <laughs> I I am pulling the plug on big tech right now because it was taking too much of me and I'm at a time where I need to invest in myself and explore myself a bit more. So I don't know if I I won't even be as ignorant to say I'll never go back into tech. That's probably unlikely. But right now, it's a no. So that means like I am going to start turning down interviews that I was ramping up on and being clear with them and hopefully leaving on like really good and open terms with those hiring managers that wanted to take a chance on me. And it's nerve wracking, right? Because I got into this and I I don't know if I touched on this in my first interview. I cringe listening back on myself, but (laughs) I was a self-taught designer and, you know, I was Midwestern girl. Like I didn't have a lot of exposure to what Silicon Valley was. So to decide to walk away from something when you've built so much progress and you've put in so much work for the last 10 years, like putting in so much work to make it to where I've made it to then say, I'm going to walk away. I don't know like what it looks like, like if people will open, receive me again, if I want to come back. And Mm. I had to decide that that was okay with me. If that ended up being the case, that was okay with me and I will figure it out. Well, I mean, yeah, when you were on the show, you were in Chicago, you were a product designer (laughs) at Trunk Club. And I think it was maybe about about six months after that is when you ended up leaving and then going out to California to work there. I mean, and as you mentioned, you've worked for two of the most well-known tech companies in the world. You were at Facebook, which is now Meta. You were at Twitter, which is now (laughs) just a single letter X. (laughs) How was your time at Facebook? Like we actually met in person in 2017 for the first time. Revision Path did that, uh, that event here in Atlanta with Facebook. Oh, that was so fun. I almost forgot. I, I was like, I know we've met in person, but I couldn't remember what was the context. <laughs> you surprised me because you had came up to me and were like, hey, Maurice. And I was like, who is this? And you're like, you're, you're like, <laughs> because, <laughs> because we had we had only talked on on Skype. And I was like, and you didn't look like your photo. You had short hair then. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, yeah. in the photo you sent me, you had like this long curly hair. I was like, oh, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know the hair will really do a number on you. How was my time at Facebook? My time at Facebook was awesome. Oh my goodness. Like I would not be where I am today without Facebook and the unique experience I had at Facebook. So the way that I transitioned out West, like first of all, I wanted to be in Silicon Valley to start with, but I wasn't ready for it. I didn't get any job offers originally. And, but I found a really cool company in Chicago. So that was really good for just like arming me with the tools to eventually try again for Silicon Valley. It did happen really organically where I was recruited into Facebook. I hadn't reached out yet. I was preparing to. Dantley Davis, who was a deep mentor of mine, and I've worked with him now like for many years, he found a piece of writing that I did for Afrotech that went like semi-viral at the time. That was five reasons why UX design and black people go together or something like that. I remember that. It was on on Blavity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Blavity is not Afrotech, yeah. This is at the time, you know, when UX was still like kind of fresh to people's minds, like what that even meant. I guess he saw that. He saw a couple other pieces that I had done and he was like, yo, you interested in, you know, my team? I was like, I'm interested in anything, <laughs> anything. <laughs> like, please, yes. And I really wanted to work at a social media company. So I got the experience of working for a black director, first of all. So that's already new. A black director that was really pushing the culture and doing so in an authentic way. Awesome experience. My direct manager was also black, (laughs) which is so like already it's a bit abnormal than probably your typical Facebook experience. 
Mm-hmm. And then there were not a lot of black people in product at all at Facebook, but because it was so big, there were tens of thousands of people, even just having 1% of us there was a lot more than what I came from in Chicago, which was like, I knew one person who did UX design that looked Mm. like me in Chicago. So now I had access to like incredible women and men who like came from experiences like mine and cultural contexts like mine that were I see sixes and sevens and eights and directors and I'm like, oh my gosh. And people are getting money and things are happening and they're talking in different languages and you're immersed in like this incredible culture because Facebook design, I really feel like was leading a lot of the sort of education on what design organizations could look like and best practices. They were putting out a lot of content on Medium. Julie Zhao was like doing a ton on Medium and I like would religiously read all everything that she put out. So I was really like, I just felt blessed to get to work within this, in the space that I had dreamt about. I learned a lot technically, like I was up against and working with some of the top prototypers who became good friends of mine, top visual designers, top strategic thinkers and storytellers. And I got to sort of see through like their own craft okay, what of this do I like to do? What could I be good at doing? And then they also like sort of taught me how to implement that at scale through working with cross-functional partners like PMs. And well, PMs and engineers, I was already used to working with. It was working with people even bigger than that that really impacted the full customer experience that I first got to like immerse myself with. So that was like product marketing managers and data scientists and and a formal user research team, like all of those people that are so important to the product we put out that I got to be introduced to at Facebook. So that was super cool. The offices were super fly. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, this is when Facebook, they were giving money. So they relocated me from Mm -hmm. Chicago to the Bay. So they moved my car. I remember like these movers came into my apartment, packed up my house and like set me all up. Like, wow. Yeah, like really nice stuff. Like, I don't know how else I would have moved to California or afforded it. I mean, the offices were just super luxurious. They had seven, 10, I don't know, 15 different like cafeterias and vending machines filled with like Apple products and just ridiculous type of stuff. And then you were expected to travel around the world to sort of meet the customers that you were building for. So you're flying like first class essentially to these different countries that I probably would have never been able to visit. So you're having (laughs) all expenses paid by Facebook to go learn and do research, do the thing that you like to do. It just, it was a really fast and fun time Mm -hmm. that also was really challenging too. Because again, not a lot of people that looked like us, sometimes the decisions that the company made was not vibing with, and it was a huge ship. And you're ultimately like a cog in a bigger ship. And I definitely made impacts in the way that I wanted to, but not as fast always as I wanted to, or in the Mm -hmm. way that I wanted to do it. And that ultimately led me to start looking elsewhere. Were you working out of MPK 20 out of Menlo Park? Yes. So I started there like right when they opened MPK 20, I think like a year or two prior to me joining. It was really new. I was out there. Oh, I remember it was October 2016. Because Facebook was doing their like design lecture series and they were supporting Revision Path. And so I was like, well, I would love to do some interviews on Facebook's campus. You know, I was like joking, like, haha, you know, we could do it. And they were like, okay. Yeah. And they, they paid first class ticket, flew me out, flew my equipment out and everything. And I remember like going to the building and just 
it's kind of hard to describe how tremendous the scale of just that one office was. Yes. Because it has yeah. like this, um, it's almost like a, like a indoor track or like a loop where yep. you can sort of walk around the whole building. And yeah, they have all of these different like cafeteria stations or food stations or whatever. And people's desks are just kind of out. Like it didn't feel like a cube farm at all. It just felt like, you know, almost like a department store, but people worked here in a way because <laughs> it was just that yeah. big and massive. I had a love hate relationship with it because to actually do work in that office was terrible. But oh, like there's so much going on and there were so many people. Yeah. And open floor plans are just uh, really ridiculous for the creative process sometimes because <laughs> everyone just comes up to you and they're just looking at, you know, it's just mm-hmm. obnoxious. But yeah, the lifestyle of Facebook at that time was, I don't know what it's like now, but it was really cool. At least for someone who was like 23. I think I joined when I was 23. 23 had no responsibilities. Oh like, yeah. You, know, you were, <laughs> this was, you were living it up. I was living it up. I was like, yeah, I'll be here all day, all night, whatever. You're taking the shuttle like from, cause I lived in Oakland. You would take the shuttle with the Wi-Fi. It was like the, the shuttles for Facebook are like the most beautiful greyhounds you've ever seen in your mm-hmm, life. Like not mm-hmm. actual greyhounds. And they, oh my, you do all your work, get in at 11. I remember the first day I like showed up at like nine and no one, <laughs> no one was there, <laughs> which is the opposite of Chicago where like if you were there at 9.05, like you were in fucking trouble. Sorry, you're in trouble. <laughs> this was not the case. People were showing up late in their flip flops and sweats, which I didn't love, but whatever. <laughs> and then they leave on their shuttle at like three and they're just like living it up. Yeah, it was good. And we did some really... I got to work on some really cool stuff. The best projects were working on like a Fenty Beauty AR project and working on a Facebook music, which included some AR stuff and really cool effects. And just the whole vibe of it was like really fun, honestly. You know, we're talking about one building when we say MPK 20, but like, it's almost like a town. Yeah. It's almost like Facebookville in terms (laughs) of the scale. And like, there's even like an internal transit system to get you to different buildings and stuff. Like I was free Uber. Yeah. I was so blown away. That was also, I remember because uh, you, you you know you know Tori Harger we know Tori Harger oh yeah yeah, yeah. Tori was okay. giving me a tour and uh, we had went to the Instagram building and he's like oh yeah you know this is the Instagram building where we do Instagram and they had these little like stages as soon as you walk in the building where you could mm-hmm. you know take pictures for Instagram and he's like oh yeah give me your phone and I'll take some pictures for the Revision Path Instagram. And I didn't have an Instagram for Revision Path. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't have Instagram. And I'm saying that in the Instagram building. And it was like you could hear a pin drop. Needless to say, I was on Instagram by the time the day ended. But like the scale of that place is just so massive to think about. And yeah, I could see how you were saying you felt like just a cog in the in the whole ship of everything because it's it's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And Facebook was definitely a place driven by data and it was pretty top down. Like they, they say it's bottoms up. Like, yeah, you could decide your roadmaps with the PMs and such. And that's a skill that you learn. And there's certain initiatives that I got to be part of that definitely influenced what we worked on, but your impact, which translated to, okay, your performance review, which happens every six months, which is tied to your bonuses, your, you know, whether you're going to get promoted or not your impact is tied to data. Like what metrics did you move? And so that kind of started to incentivize, not kind of, it incentivized everyone to work in a way that was really like 
not necessarily what I define for myself as like building the best user experience always, or even the way in which I like to go about product development. And so the promotions felt real good. The raises felt really good. The equity refreshes felt really good. But over time, it's like, ah, I want to try something else. I want to try something else just for now. So you made the jump over to Twitter and that was right before the pandemic began. Is that right? Yeah, my timing is just really interesting. So (laughs) (laughs) I like coincide everything that I I do in my career with like major stuff happening out in the world. Dantley had moved to Twitter maybe like two years. I can't remember prior to me joining. He was pitching me on a team or rather an opportunity area that he thought I, I might be good at. Now I'm I'm fresh off of what was like the Facebook sharing team and then the Facebook watch team. So sharing is a really ruthless team to be on at times at Facebook because it's always like the most impactful to the bottom line, but it's really hard to get the metrics up. And again, like Facebook was oriented around metrics. So if you can't move the needle there, like it just was really stressful. Mm-hmm. So I was really burnt out by like consumer facing, like sharing products, like creation products. So that's like creating things on a newsfeed, creating things in any sort of social media app. And this opportunity that he was describing sounded like sharing to me. It wasn't sharing, but it sounded like some of that same sort of stuff. But it was vaguely like, okay, we want to build something in audio. You know, we don't really know what it is. The team needs that sort of design vision and design strategy and some of the velocity that you probably would bring if you're down. And I was like, thinking about it. And Twitter, I loved as a consumer. Twitter was my social media of choice. I had always loved Twitter and I built like a really strong like design network on Twitter and found a home there. I never was interested in joining the company because I had heard through the valley like it's just very white and the way things were run didn't feel really fresh and innovative and they weren't shipping a lot of products. I pride myself a bit on being able to ship products so like that always was my my sort of thing as a designer like I don't get stuck in la la land like I real really will like deliver something by the end of it and with Dantley moving over there he was changing the culture along with some other like bigger cultural changes too happening at Twitter he's like no things are changing and you know we're hiring talent too to help with those changes I ended up taking that that role it was incredible like Twitter was really incredible. So that, I I joined Twitter in January 2020. I went to their their one team. It's called One Team, which was a time where everyone across the globe gets together in person to have like this big conference. That was in Houston. It was like the first week of January or second, and it was lit. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, it was so lit because like Twitter was just that sort of like more hippie tech company you know you think jack dorsey versus mark zuckerberg it just like had that sort of vibe and Mm -hmm. then they really leaned into quote-unquote the culture so like there was like black people like doing stuff that was just i just was cool like we were there like partying (laughs) and like hanging and like the vibes were just right from start and Mm. it was a much smaller company than facebook so i'm going from i think when i left facebook it was like 40 or 50k at the time employees and twitter was like seven thousand. So I already okay. felt much smaller, easier to navigate. I'm working on, uh, we get back from one team. I'm working with my team, which is three guys that were jamming on a, a very ambiguous scope of audio. And then we are about to head to a user research session in, I think, Houston, actually, again. And I get a call to say to cancel my flights because Twitter is going to shut down. Probably bef- Twitter was the first company, I think, in tech to like shut down and go remote when 2020 happened 
Uh, so I get that call. I had to cancel my flight. And I remember asking, I was like, uh, it's not going to be that long, right? Like, we're not going to be locked up for that long, right? <laughs> and they're like, I think it's going to be a bit. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, three weeks. <laughs> to say I never went back into the office again, like three years later, and only three months in was, yeah, I just wouldn't have expected that. So from there on, it was like a fully remote position. And we were all working remotely, everyone in the globe, obviously. But yeah, my entire time at Twitter was remote, which was interesting. It was really important to have that one team experience. So I think that made me feel much better about the situation. And now one of the the products you were working on while you were at Twitter ended up becoming Twitter Spaces. We won't go into that. You actually yeah. did a whole episode with this podcast I produced called Happy Paths. I'll put a link to that if people want to hear about your journey with sort of helping to build that product. But there were some other features that you worked on as well. You worked on voice tweets. Is that mm-hmm. right? Some other things yep. as well? Yeah, I worked on voice tweets, the first commerce sort of beta approach, which like turned into like a whole organization. And then I left it. I transitioned from spaces because I was just ready for something new. And I was working on our crypto sort of like very ambiguous crypto space. I was though like second trimester pregnant at the time. A couple months prior to that, Jack Dorsey left. They let go of Dantley and a couple other really important leaders, Kayvon. And those two like really, really were the ones that were driving a lot of the positive change on the product side. Mm-hmm. So Twitter was quickly corroding from my point of view. And I also just didn't care about work like that because I cared about my baby and like myself and whether I was going to be able to deliver you know, like there were bigger questions I had for myself. Right. Yeah. But I did get to work on a couple of interesting things by the end of it, like some interesting concepts for crypto, but those didn't really get to see those, the light so much. And then a couple months after that, Elon bought the company and the rest, I guess, <laughs> is in the news. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like with all these sort of things changing as quickly as they were, it sort of kind of put that idea in your mind that it might be time for you to go then as well, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think Spaces was such an incredible experience. Voice tweets and Spaces really were like a one-two punch together. I had, I loved the team I was working with and I loved like how we built that, that product and even how we approached it. Everything just felt so good, but it was really hard too. Like there was some really not cool stuff that went down as well. Mm-hmm. And we went from a team of three, four to a hundred and I realized, like, I just didn't like that part of the job so much. Maybe in the future I will, but, like, the scaling to an org, like, ugh. Like, I did not like it. Um, <laughs> and I didn't like it. I Well, I didn't know why fully I didn't like it, but I knew I didn't like it in the context of, like, this bigger tech company where you have, like, the KPIs and the roadmaps and the vision planning, like, all that stuff. And oh, it just was a lot of politics. And so I was really burnt out after spaces and needed a break. And honestly, with all the drama that happened, like I got that break. Like people really weren't checking for me after like Jack Dorsey and them left mm-hmm. <laughs> because no one knew what their job was. Like everyone was running around with their like heads cut off. And I was like, well, I'm pregnant. I'm just going to lay up. <laughs> well, it sounds like it was also just a big like career shift in a way because you had went from being like an IC as a product designer it sounds like you were mostly an IC while you were at Facebook. And then at Twitter, you're now like managing a team. You're on management. How did you approach that shift? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good context. So I, I just to be super transparent. When I joined 
Facebook, I was IC4, got promoted, was about to get promoted, left before that and went to Twitter. And I still was on the IC track. I went from staff to senior staff. So like, that's just like going up the IC sort of like career ladder. And during that like senior staff transition, which I think translates to like an eight at most companies, that was at the same time that Spaces had gone live as a beta. The company decided, okay, it's our number one priority. Maya, Alex, Remy, all the people that were like the leads of the team, what do you need to like make this make product market fit? Mm -hmm. Um, And that included bringing on a lot more designers. And so there was a point where I was getting coaching from Dantley where I was telling him, I was like, I don't know how to do this. Like I'm not a manager. And I never went into management at Twitter. It wasn't my goal. Uh, but he he wanted me to essentially move into a design lead role, which was undefined at Twitter at the time, even though they were starting to try that out with me and a couple other designers. And he was like, you're essentially like the mass editor of spaces and you need to orient the team, the design team to be able to create the product that, you know, we all see could happen. So I internalized that. And I also knew for myself what type of culture and environment I wanted to work within. And that mattered to me. So while it wasn't my actual manager, I wasn't a manager. I also like paid a lot of attention to the team culture. And I mm. worked with my direct manager and he was awesome. He like gave me a lot of support in doing this. Like I worked with him to sort of set a culture and different activities, put those in place so that the team could not only like create the best product, but it felt good getting there ideally, even though the the pressure was high. So yeah, going from being the sole designer to leading seven designers were talented, super talented designers too. Like that was an incredible learning experience, but man, that was really fun. Really well, fun, really hard. Well, it's good that they sort of were also kind of giving you the sort of support to support that team. Like they didn't just say, okay, now you're leading. Good luck. Like it sounds like you sort of had help and support along the way as you were kind of navigating all of this. Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) So I got the support and I definitely got help, but it usually happened at like a major junction point where I just completely was burnt out. One of the ways in which like we even realized I needed so many more designers than I originally thought. I remember a new design director, leader in the industry, Holly, had just joined. I had never met him big fan of his Twitter presence and everything he did with Wayno. They had just been acquired. He and I were going to sit down and have a conversation. Spaces was like, oh my God, I was just so stressed out by it. And I couldn't figure out how to like essentially meet the leadership team's ask, which was like, okay, figure out how to do like all of these things and what resources you need. I, I just didn't know. And he and I get on a call and he's so good at reading people. He and I had never met and he was like, how are you? And the most embarrassing thing happened. I just started bursting out crying um, to this man that I'd never met before. Like it was, oh my God, it goes against everything that like I want to be. I've cried twice in front of people at work and I always hate myself (laughs) afterwards, but it just, I could not help myself. I was so like distraught. And through that, like that's when we really got to the like essence of what I needed. Mm -hmm. And that was like more support, more designers. And then the, also the like sort of uh, go ahead from design leadership. Sometimes people are really, I find that like managers and leaders sometimes are really nervous about saying, no, this designer is who you need to listen to. Usually they're like, oh, everyone's opinion is sort of like equal and like the best one will come out. But that's not always true. Like sometimes you need like a decision maker. And so 
it was a combination of getting those resources and being everyone explicitly knowing like Maya is the decision maker that empowered me to like really lean into that role and then like sort of transition in that situation. And so now after Twitter, you joined Riverside as their VP of design, which is where you were most recently. I know you were only there for like a short amount of time, but like, can you just sort of sum up like what it was like there for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even why I chose it. So after leaving Twitter, it just, I was curious still. I had some questions about my career. Like I mentioned, I'd, I had uh, gotten to a pretty senior level of IC path, but I had been leading a team of designers. Several managers of mine had pitched the idea of me going into management. I knew that I wasn't really that interested in doing it at a big tech company, just based off of like what I was witnessing was the role of a manager. But I was curious about it. And I kind of thought that like at a startup, maybe that would be the way that I could both still keep my hands in the product making and product strategy and all of that while also like getting to try out management. So I thought that this VP role would be like the sort of best of both worlds. And I probably downplayed like the challenges. Like I knew it was going to be challenging to work in the 10 time zone difference. And I knew like even just the cultural differences might be a challenge, but I wasn't, I wasn't too concerned about that type of stuff. But I, yeah, that 10 time zones and even just the nuances of the startup world, right? Like I'm coming from big tech into startup world. It is mm-hmm. different. Even though spaces like like to brand itself as a startup within a big company, like no, it's still different. <laughs> it's really different. Mm-hmm. What I really loved about Riverside is that they just moved really fast, but from a place of curiosity. Like they would always be like observing what's happening out in the world and where their competitors were moving. And they weren't afraid of scrapping a roadmap and just like redesigning one or reprioritizing it. Sometimes we did, did that probably a little bit too much. <laughs> and, and I think honestly, like through our work together, like we started to get a little bit more consistent with our priorities. And that was great. But, you know, some of that even was like, you know, a bit of a a headache to just navigate, you know, just how rapidly things could change in terms of priorities. What I found with Riverside was like people were really just genuinely down to like create and like hopefully create a really solid product for customers. And I know everyone says that, but like, I don't know, people just seem to be really curious to do that and really open to receiving wherever that idea could come from. So like, they're all taking a bet on me too. Like I'm in LA and they now have like this new leader who's all the way over here and they kind of had to listen to like, they kind of embrace that with open arms and that was cool. And I think the startup world in general, I really am still fascinated by, but one thing I learned was I probably want to be to create it myself. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I have so many skills at this point and I have a way of working where actually like startups aren't that different from big tech companies. If you have a boss, the boss is still the boss and the what their vision is and how they want to do work. Like that is the way in which you have to do work. That's not a bad thing. And it wasn't even bad that how Riverside did it. It just at this time in my life, I was realizing that's not what I'm looking for. Like I was actually trying to get away from that sort of like, I don't know, like company first mindset. Like I want to build something. I want to build something. You know, I don't want to push forward something that's already been built. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a natural progression, though. I mean, going from these larger companies to smaller companies, but you're gaining more and more experience just as a designer, as a person, you're just gaining more experience. So I feel like that's a natural progression. 
Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> it's a messy journey. I think it's even messier now that I've like pulled the plug on big tech, apparently. But I think it's going to shake out to something really beautiful, hopefully. I think it will. I think it will. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the beautiful things about this show and having done it for so long with these conversations, you know, it can kind of show people that your career path is isn't always a linear thing. Like it can have ups and downs and highs and lows and et cetera, as long as you kind of at least have a sense of what it is you want to do and where you're going. And it sounds like you've kind of weathered that in your own career. Yeah, 100%. Oh, man. You know, you hear it. You hear it when you first start out. One of my best friends who like originally was just a, a colleague of mine, she just would always tell me like, your path and your journey is your path and your journey. Like you make the decisions that are right for your career. And, you know, at first you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And you kind of can get taken away in the career paths that these companies have sort of set out. Like I see four, five, six, seven, eight. Then you go into VP and then you go into C-suite and or you can start your own company. You know, there's these very set paths of what success, quote unquote, should look like. And they're attached to money and they're attached to potentially notoriety and all those things. And what I found myself doing was like going through that path, making a couple of choices that were uniquely Maya but not enough, not enough of those uniquely Maya choices and ones that only I could answer. And I think, you know, you really have to put in the hours and the effort. Like the last decade of work was really important to get me to where I am today, where I feel comfortable being like comfortable and confident being like, actually, it's a no right now. Right now, I need to go do something different. And I believe in what that difference is. And I have the skills to go approach that difference and turn left on this path instead of turning right, even though right is maybe what everyone else would naturally say I should go. And I think when people are able to do that, and you know what you and I were talking about a little bit earlier was just like, I think a lot of us, a lot of millennials, and definitely people, you know, and other generations too, like are just kind of waking up and realizing like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do this path in the way in which it's been laid out for me. Like, I don't actually know if I believe in this work for 30 years and then get to go do the thing that I am I love to do or that I want to explore within myself. I don't even know if I love to do it because I haven't been able to do it. Do I want to wait until I'm 60 to do that? Do I need X amount of money to be able to go do that? Like, I think what I've been doing, what I decide to do is figure out what those constraints are that I've applied to myself, what I'm missing to be able to go and do that self-exploration through my career path I don't know. And then see, I guess, where the where the cards land <laughs> after it. I'm now not willing to wait until I'm 40, 50, 60, I guess, to go figure it out. Like it needed to happen now. That's what I learned. So when you look back at kind of the experiences that you've had, you look back at your career, and I would say even like looking at what the current landscape is now in tech uh, and design, I should say, we'll, we'll put tech and design together. What do you think it means to be a designer these days? Oof. What does it mean to be a designer these days? I feel like designers are typically multidisciplinary, like the best designers are. But there is a, a singular part of their design skills that they can get paid to do or paid really well to do. And so we kind of lean into that. But I've seen people, whether they're product designers or really honestly outside of product designers, like interior designers, stylists, just creators in other ways. 
I've seen when they leave their like corporate structure and they just like take that bet on themselves because they put in the time and the work and gotten the network and gotten the resources that they need to go do that. Like amazing stuff blossoms. So what does that mean for design? Like I think design is is still messy. As messy as it was back in the day, like it's still messy now. Like yes, we have like more understanding as a industry of of maybe the different types of designers, like what exists and what types of design work we need. But we're not yet good at helping designers blossom in a variety of design skills. It's like, are you going to be a tech designer? Are you going to be a graphic designer? Are you going to be an agency designer? Are you going to be a fashion designer? You know, it's very limiting. There are people that push outside that box. And what I assume is happening is, is they're finding some interesting happiness and in like making stuff that can be really impactful on the world in a unique way. I'm kind of hopeful that that same thing happens to me. I don't know if it's, if it's actually their reality or not, but that's what I'm interpreting. Are you where you kind of want to be at this stage in your life? Maybe that's an easy question. I don't know. Yeah, I am actually. That's why <laughs> I think I was comfortable walking away. Right. So like, and what does that mean? So like for me, Honestly, since I was like a little girl, like I knew that I wanted to be successful and that meant like money and being able to do whatever I wanted to do. So having the financial means to be able to do whatever I wanted to do, have a loving partner, have a family probably. And so by choosing this career path and then like going all in on it and having a lot of luck along the way, I was able to sort of achieve enough to be able to like check the boxes on a lot of my childhood dreams. And I think because that happened, I'm now in this state where I'm like, so then why am I still doing that? Like, why am I still in the rat race in that way? One good answer is like, I need health care. My family needs health care. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, again, we're, I, we tucked away a good amount of money and it's not enough for us to just like retire, retire. But it is probably enough to, to stop, get out of the rat race, look at it from like a, a different vantage point and maybe go invest in ourselves or myself. Me and my, my husband are, are both on our like self-employment journey now Okay, and kind of see where it shakes out. And corporate America is always going to be there. That's like the, the, the backbone of this society. So, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to enter back into big tech, shiny roles <laughs> when I'm done with this self-exploration, but there I'll be able to feed my family. And I think being able to distance myself from the like keeping up with the Joneses mentality mm-hmm. enabled me to sort of make that call. And like a good example of this is like me and my husband bought a house and that was like a really proud moment for us. And I remember one of the things that happened after we bought this house was like a lot of people were like, oh, this is your starter home. You're going to move into a bigger house. Oh, immediately. Um, <laughs> wow. And they didn't even, I know. And they didn't even say it from a, it, like coming from a bad place at all. At all. Like, I understand why they said that. But I just was like, wow, I can't, like, shouldn't we just be satisfied with what we have? Because I immediately started thinking, like, okay, yeah, I need to go get like a bigger tech bag so then I can go get the bigger house. And I'm like, I don't want the bigger house. Like, I have enough house problems. I have enough house (laughs) problems with what I have. And I like my home. I like designing my home. Like, I, I don't need more. So because I'm in this space, I'm like, okay, so then, then I don't need a job that has these super high dollar signs attached to it and benefits and stuff. Like maybe I will in the future, maybe my son or myself or our health will require it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then we'll saddle up and go do that. But if right now 
my family doesn't need it and it doesn't bring us ultimate joy, then I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. I'd be interested, like even, you know, like I think you sort of alluded that you were kind of taking a year off in a way. I'm using air quotes here, but <laughs> like you may not even want to go back into big tech after that. Like it, I'd be interested just to kind of see like what your priorities are at that point. Me too. Yeah, I I leave the door open on big tech just because I know myself and I know also like how beneficial big tech can be when you need it. I and mean, maybe there'll be a right time and right place for it. But this year for me is like definitely not going to be a sabbatical. I actually don't want that right now. I think I've done a lot of resting and rebirthing and actual birthing <laughs> over the last <laughs> two years. I'm just like ready to to go after it. I want to, me and my husband talked about it actually a couple, uh, yesterday. I want to balance my time really, really well where we're explicitly saying, okay, if no money comes in, whoo, that's scary, but okay. Like, we're just going to do that. That's fine. If you're spending your time like investing in your passions, that maybe could lead to making money. And then, so like the first six months I'm hoping is like just investigating like what I like to do, how far I can go with that, sort of sorting out like, can it make me any money? And if so, how much? Okay, out of those like five things that I might want to do and could maybe make me money, like let me pick one that actually like is drawing me. And now if I really invest all my time there, like what would happen? That would be maybe the next six months. Can you tell like we're type A? So like we're planning already like very (laughs) structured, (laughs) in a very structured way. But that's kind of how I see it going is like I want to go and I want to maybe reopen up my vintage shop. I want to maybe go and start some stuff with my husband. I want I'm going to do some design advising on the side because I'm interested in that. And I have friends building cool stuff. And I, I know a lot now. So maybe I can be helpful explore all of that, see what feels good or not. I can say no at any time because I'm not beholden to anyone but myself and my family. And then hopefully success to me would be like by the end of the year, I'm not rich or anything at all, but maybe I found a business that just is speaks to me or is mine and I'm loving and also could like earn enough for us to like continue letting me walk this path. That would be incredible if that happens, but I don't know if it will. Well, there's one project that you started recently uh, called Rec Shop. Is that right? Tell me about that. Oh, man, that was a really cool project with my brother. So I love all things vintage. So I I love vintage clothes, vintage cars. My dad was a a and still is as a DJ. He was like a DJ in the 80s. So he spun vinyl. And, you know, we always grew up with a ton of vinyl in our house. And recently, me and my brother have been getting into it. And we decided to open up a record shop. Honestly, it was just like a creative passion project to have. And I think after shutting down my clothing shop, I was like looking for that again. Quickly, we realized like the used record shop business is just not a business. (laughs) And it just wasn't (laughs) sustainable. And I had just had a baby and it was just like too much. So I think I want to do more of that type of stuff, though, because it teaches you so much. Like I learned about that business and there's like unique problems for the customer in that business. Like that was a learning And even just like what I enjoyed about or didn't. And it was a cool outlet. Like we got to design a brand and a customer experience that was all about music and curating these really important pieces of artwork to like the American music landscape. Like we got to curate that sort of stuff for people. That was really cool. And so maybe I do a couple more things like that that sort of like get me closer to understanding what my actual purpose is. What do you want your legacy to be? And again, I feel like 
asking this now is, you know, maybe a bit premature because you're right off the, the heels of quitting. You've got this yeah. freedom. The rest of the year has opened up to you. But have you have you thought about that? I had not thought about that until you asked it <laughs> like a couple, you know, a little bit before the, the podcast. But it's such an important question. I do know from a gut sense what legacy for me and I think my husband shares this. But one of the drivers of me quitting and quitting tech for a little bit was just I want my legacy to be the imprint that I have on my son in the type of woman I'm proud of. And he's proud of me for being So I want him to see that he can make radical choices that are okay and can be honored and enable you to be your best self. And best self means like showing up as a better partner, a better mommy, a better just individual in general. Making choices that go against the grain, if it means it's right for you, is okay. Like that's the type of legacy, like him approaching, you know, those intersections of life head on and not being scared of that and really having that sort of gut sense of like, no, this is right for me. I'm going to try that. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to go try that. I'm going to go do something kind of crazy. I'm going to and feel good about that because I know it makes me a better man. Like that's the type of legacy that I think about. And if I leave some cool projects in my wake as I do that, that, that'd be awesome too. Well, I feel like that's a a good place to wrap up. But I guess before we do that, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? No, I think though, if anyone's doing some cool work in the, any cool work, honestly, like I'm obviously <laughs> open. <laughs> I, have free, I have some free time, believe it or not. So I guess I would just share that like, maybe I, I'll leave my email for people to reach out directly. Like if they're working on anything cool, especially like any cool collaborations in the vintage space, any cool like design product, startup stuff, like, I'm just here to sort of like understand what people are trying to do and see if there's some synergy. And if not with me, then maybe with somebody else. So I am open and more accessible than ever, I would say right now. And yeah, just leave that. Okay. Where can uh, people find you online? Hmm, I know it's a good question because I kind of am off socials, but my accounts exist. So I'm on Twitter at Maya G Patterson. And then I'm on Instagram at Maya Patterson not super active there. Maybe I'll become more active. I don't know. We got to see, but usually there. You know, I feel like we're sort of at this time where people are maybe trying to wean themselves off of social media. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's, well, I think what it is, honestly, is that, you know, Twitter has lost its damn mind and then all these Mm -hmm. other Twitter clones kind of popped up and folks are like, oh, well, now I'm on threads. Now I'm on spill. Now I'm on spottable. And I'm like, I'm not going to be in six different places. I'm going to wait like a year and see if any of these still exist. And then maybe I'll see like, okay, if I, if I decide to migrate to something, because people have asked that about revision path. They're like, well, why isn't revision path on threads? I'm like, well, I'm squatting on an account, but I don't think I'm going <laughs> to ever really use it, but we'll, we'll see how things work out. I know it's interesting. It's in a really interesting space. I don't know where it's going to net out. I know, I think because I've worked in social media now for a bit, I know that it's not good for us. Like, I know mentally it's not good for us. And so that's mm-hmm. why I had to make the call for myself to, like, quit smoking, which was like, quit social media. Yeah. Realistically, when you have a small business like you do or any sort of, like, project, like, using social media is really, like, one of the best tools you have to, like, get your, you know, your work out there and make connections and stuff. So I think now I'm going to have to probably, like, reinvestigate my Instagram or something like that. 
But yeah, it's just yuck. At least, I don't know. Like, it's just not good for us to be consuming people's lives in that sort of way. Yeah. Um, that frequently. And I know I feel much better since I've been off. And I and when I do go on, it's like through my desktop for like five minutes. I don't think that I'm going to be on Twitter for much longer, which is so sad because I, like I said, I, I loved Twitter. Yeah. But yeah. I don't believe in anything that's going on there. So I probably got to delete that. And I guess threads is kind of left or spill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to just wait and see. I mean, I talked about this on another episode, but I was like, you know, back in 2006, 2007, a bunch of Twitter clones popped up and there was like Yammer, there was Pounce, there was yeah. Jaiku, there were a bunch of them. And then like within like a year or two's time, they all either, either looked at other markets, like Plurk is, I think, huge in Taiwan, or they got bought out by a bigger company and then got closed down, or they just shut mm. down altogether. So, I don't want to, the way that I think I said it in I, in the last interview, I said, you know, if, if Elon Musk is the problem, I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg is the answer. Oh, I know that's right. So, <laughs> so may, maybe there might be just an option to divest altogether. Maybe. I think that there should be. I actually have thought about this as like a potential project, but more on that later. I But yeah, <laughs> I, I get ourselves out of it. You know what I've been doing though? Instead of scrolling, you know what I've been spending my time doing recently? What, what's that? I've been going to the public library. Okay. okay. I've been going to the public library, which is an incredible resource that is actually inspiring and gives you a lot of content for free that is not like destructive to your mental <laughs> wellness and health. And it's been so good. I like go there regularly and check out books. And like, I spend so much time reading now. It feels really nice. I would encourage people to do that. You heard it, folks. Support your local library. (laughs) Maya Gold Patterson, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. One, it's just great to to have you back on the show. But then also just to have seen your glow up over the years Mm -hmm. to see how you have grown as a person, as a designer. I mean... I'm going to be really excited to see what is next for you. And I'm so glad that you were able to come on the show, especially on the heels of such a a big life change to talk about sort of what that means in the greater context of your career and everything. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Maurice. And thank you for creating this safe space. I mean, I am so happy like you're essentially like the first place that I get to even share this news with. So just thank you for that and and being always so warm and open like keep doing what you're doing like your type of energy is what this world needs oh thank you thank you big big thanks to maya gold patterson and of course thanks to you for listening you can find out more about maya and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com revision path is supported by brevity and wit Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, 
with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on social media. You can find us on both Instagram and Twitter at Revision Path, just all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify, follow us on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Or leave us a message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.